Lord, as we go through this day and have uh, some understanding of what it is that you desire for us to lay down at your feet, help us to do it immediately without reservation. Help us to seek your face and, and find freedom again. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. We say together, amen. You can have a seat. Hey, uh, do you appreciate Amy and the band uh, doing their thing? How about, the, uh, how about Josh on the drums, huh? That was... Yeah, yeah. If you're a, a drummer, man, you were you were digging it. So I thank you to every everybody. And what you heard backing up over there was our dessert. Um, it's the ice cream truck that you can barely see, and uh, that comes after the taco bar, which we'll enjoy in just a few minutes. But let me just take you down a path for a moment and get us to a place where you and I can decide how we're going to chart our course for the next couple of months. Donna and I just got back from a trip that we began planning about a year ago. It was to our trip was to the Grand Tetons and Yellowstone National Park. It's one of our favorite places in all the world. And we love being there. This trip has been a year in the making. And it wasn't where we originally planned to go when we decided to plan this trip. Well, Donna has a couple of bucket list items, and one of them, the first one that was on the docket on the agenda for this trip involved a rim-to-rim hike down at the Grand Canyon. Donna's bucket list looks very different than my bucket list. Her bucket list involves hikes and outdoors and accomplishments. Mine involves food and the Dave Matthews Band. So um, we are checking off her list before we get to mine because when we start doing mine, we're not going to feel like hiking. So we planned a trip to hike from the north rim of the Grand Canyon, down into the canyon, stay one or two nights, and then hike up to the South Rim. We were going to do this with probably both our sons and our new daughter-in-law, and this was going to be an incredible trip. It involves staying at a campground that is now lottery-based to get in it. And so we, all of us, we put in as many entries as we could into this lottery to get a site at this campground down at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. Why anybody would camp there, I have no idea, but that's what we were going to do. And we none of, not one of us won the lottery, and so we began to shift our plans. And another item on her bucket list is a hike that goes in between two of the mountains at the Tetons. It goes down up, up a valley, over a pass, and comes out a different valley. And it's about a 20-mile hike. And I mentioned this in a message a couple weeks ago. And it was our intent to do this with our son and new daughter-in-law, stay in our camper. You see, a, a couple months into the pandemic, we bought a camper. And we did that because we got tired of not having plans. And we knew that if we had our own camper, our own way to go and get someplace and see the beauty of God's creation, that we could have our own plans. And so we bought this, and we've been using it. And so we hauled this camper all the way up to Yellowstone and Grand Teton. And our hopes, hiking this with family, we saw the weather change and shift a little bit. And so we began to move our hike It was supposed to happen Monday and Tuesday of our second week of our trip. We began to move it one day at a time as we got closer to our hike. And finally, our hike had been reduced down to a one-day hike that we feel like we could do on a Saturday. We moved it already four days, and then the forecast shifted one more time. And we saw that we were not going to be able to complete this hike at all. In fact, it was getting so cold that it was going to snow on Sunday and Grand Teton, and Yellowstone, and Jackson. And we just thought, for a year now, we have made our plans. 
We shifted them once from the Grand Canyon all the way up to a different national park. Now we've shifted them again. We shifted them two more days. And finally, the day before our hike, Donna had you know a, a bit of a meltdown. And, and she'll, she'll tell you more about it because she can get in more detail than I'm willing to tell right now. And, uh, but finally, she just said, you know, I feel like I'm flexible. And you know what's coming next, you know, up to a point. We had changed our plans, I don't know, a dozen times by the time we looked at our camper, looked at the weather, and thought, we can't even stay here now. We have to go south. And we were worried about it freezing, you know, all of these things that happen when you're camping and you have this camper with a water system. And so finally we looked at each other and decided that we would hook this thing back up to the truck because what we said was, look, we, we can't control the weather, but we can't control where this thing is parked, so let's go south. And that's what we did. And I don't know if you have felt this way through the pandemic and then the non-pandemic and then the pandemic returning and then the Delta variant and then all these things that have changed in our lives and changed the course of where we're headed, but we felt like everything had been changed on us so much we had just about lost our way. Our heart and our attitude, our minds, uh, we were not in a vacation mindset for a couple of days. We did not feel like we were getting a break. What we felt like is we had the burden of changing and shifting and not getting to experience the thing that we had hoped and dreamed and planned for. We had lost our way. I don't know if you've lost your way over the last several months or maybe over the last few weeks. I've had several conversations with, with teachers in our church and people that work in customer service. And you know, based on their stories, I'm sure none of them are about you. I'm confident that's not the case. But based on some of their stories about working with parents and neighborhood associations and the public and people that they're interacting with, many of us have lost our way. And it could be that you are doing so in an outward way, but it could be internal. It could be that hope has slipped away a little bit, or it could be that you have found yourself wondering, what is this all about? Why am I here? What, what's happening? What are we going to do next? And almost every one of those questions we asked over the course of 24 hours while we're towing a trailer from a snowy area to what turned out to be an even colder area to the south. <laughs> and so I find myself in my pajamas at 9 p.m. at night, running around my trailer trying to figure out if the thing is going to freeze or not. And I was not a happy camper. <laughs> We've lost our way. There's three chapters in the book of Matthew that our church is going to focus on over the next... I don't need that. It's okay. You can let go. Over the next two months, for the months of October and November. These three chapters are Matthew 5, 6, and 7. The series is called Follower, and if you have your little sheet there, your little card that you were handed on your way in, it explains kind of what it, where it is and what it's about. And in fact, today, we're going to encourage you just to read the very end of what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. It is probably the most famous passage of Scripture uh, when it comes to Jesus and His ministry or even all of history and Scripture. In fact, it, it contains some of the most incredible parts of Jesus' teachings that most people don't understand comes from the same contiguous body of verses and chapters. Some of his biggest hits are in those chapters, like, well, the golden rule is there. Do unto others as you would want them to do to you. Passages that shaped and changed the landscape of the world 
Jesus tells us to love our enemies, and when he does so, he goes into significant detail. And as he does this, he articulates an approach to protest and nonviolence that has changed everything that's happened on the face of the globe. In fact, it was Gandhi, as a young man, introduced to the Sermon on the Mount by some Christians in England, began to read the words of Jesus. He was a Hindu, Gandhi, and it changed how he viewed violence and pacifism. Because of the words of Jesus, Gandhi developed an approach to political change that ended up freeing India from the rule of Great Britain. And he credits the words of Jesus for affecting everything he taught, everything he lived. And so he found himself across the landscape of India, building a movement based on, as a Hindu, the words of Jesus. It's contested that Gandhi said this, but often it's attributed to him in a couple of different settings where he said, after reading and studying the Sermon on the Mount, he says, I, I like your Jesus, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians because they are so much unlike your Christ. When we pull aside these three, these three chapters from Matthew, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, our goal is to do the very thing that we needed when we were on vacation, maybe the very thing when you found yourself in an altercation in the middle of a Walmart, or maybe just in the middle of your living room wondering what the next few months might hold for you. After you've changed your plans over and over again, after people have disappointed you time and time again, our hope is that the Sermon on the Mount will help us find our way and that it will guide us, not just in how we think, but in how we live, not just in what we believe, but in how we treat one another. According to Gandhi and many others who watch many of us live and walk the Christian faith, it's not so much that Christianity is hard or difficult or impossible, although when you read the Sermon on the Mount, you'll be tempted to think that. It's that it hasn't been tried. It's that it's not been given effort to. What Gandhi found interesting about the Sermon on the Mount when he read it, I mean, it contains such very difficult principles to live by, like love your enemies, or one that would maybe saddle all of us over the last several months, like do not worry about your life. How impossible is that to live? What would be different in your life if you began to pull the effects or the weight or the burden of anxiety out of it? And so Gandhi says, it's not that the Sermon on the Mount is so hard, it's that Western Christianity or Western pastors and preachers and teachers, even those in Western churches, have decided that the Sermon on the Mount is unattainable, something that can't be lived. That wasn't his approach at all. And the result was the change of a socioeconomic and geopolitical reality for millions of people taught by a Hindu how to follow Jesus. It's an interesting approach. And so what if we decided, as a people and as a church, what if we decided as moms and dads that we would take the teachings of Jesus seriously? I don't know how many times I've heard it taught that, well, Jesus said this, but that's not exactly what he meant. I mean, he didn't really mean that you should, what, you fill in the blank, turn the other cheek, 
Decide that you will not resist an evil person. Go the extra mile. Forgive people who have wronged you. But what would happen if you and I decided that we would devote our energy and our heart and our mind not only to living this out, but to living it out in community so that we have discussions about what that would look like? What does it mean to love your enemy? What does it mean to not practice your righteousness in front of other people? What would happen to the body of Christ? Let's take it down to the granular level. What would happen to my life and your life, our families, our marriages, our kids, if we decided to live that way? It would change everything. And Jesus is so bold at the end of the sermon to contend that not only does it change everything, but it will take a life like you're living right now and put it right in the middle of the storm And then when the storm happens, your life stands at the end of it. That's what he tells, this parable. It's how he wraps up the whole sermon. So we begin at the end. Jesus tells the story of two people, probably two families that build houses. One builds their house on the sand. And of course, it's a story as old as time. And you've heard it over and over. And another builds his house with a strong, firm foundation. Luke tells the same parable that Jesus says in, that, in his gospel that he dug deep down and built his foundation on the bedrock. And then when the storm comes, when the weather turns cold, when the unexpected happens, you know when the unexpected happens, right? It's anything you didn't expect. It's a pandemic. It's unemployment. It's a failure on your own part or somebody else's that you love and trust. It happens at every turn. But Jesus says that if you will build your life on his words that he speaks, his teachings, and we could even just narrow it down to those three chapters in Matthew and a few chapters in Luke, same stuff, then your house will stand. Your life will remain. Your foundation will be so sturdy that you will... You walk out and shut the door and it shuts right because the frame hasn't shifted or bent because the water hasn't flooded in. You'll put it on the market and it will sell for top dollar, just like here in Douglas County. (laughs) Why? Because it was built right on the right stuff. And so Jesus begins to lay out what that would look like. In fact, he does so not in a book as thick as this, not in a book that's as thick as any book that you've ever read, but in just a few short chapters. And he, he dares you to take his word serious and to decide that you'll live it out. What would that look like? And so most of us have spent our time over the last couple of years in particular spending time in what Stephen Covey would call our circle of concern, all of these things that we're worried about. And you could even think of a time this week when you spent your time in your circle of concern, the things that you're worried about that make you anxious, confessing somebody else's sins or somebody else's political foibles or why things would be so much better if so-and-so was in charge or you just fill in the blank. And all of these things, you can feel yourself in the middle of a conversation like that, begin to feel powerless depressed and hopeless, like there's no hope at all for moving forward. The world isn't going to change. It's all headed in the same direction. 
there's another little circle that Stephen Covey calls the circle of influence. And that is the place where you and I find power and the ability to move things. In fact, everything in that circle of influence is something that you have a direct impact on. Your heart, your attitude, how you are, what you do, the path you choose, all of those things. So what Covey says wisely is that if you spend time in your circle of concern, well, it grows bigger and your circle of influence gets smaller. If you spend time in this circle of influence, it grows bigger and your circle of concern gets smaller. What's well, almost as if he had read the words of Jesus when Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, do not worry about your life. But then he tells you what you should spend your time on, what it looks like to love and forgive, what you should value and who gets your attention as you go through the day. Three chapters of your heart, what it means, and where you should go and where you should head. And your circle of influence begins to grow. It's interesting that Covey would have such wisdom, of course, as he reads Scripture himself. And as a, a Latter-day Saint, many of us would say, probably has a skewed view of truth and all of that. But when I read his words and I pay attention to how Gandhi did it, and I also pay attention to how many of us of faith live out our understanding of who Jesus is, what's needed more than anything else is to simply read the red letters and apply our heart, actions, our minds, and our attitudes toward them. And so that's what we'll do for the next two months. The beauty of God's love and mercy is that we have the chance to begin building every day. Now, you can't imagine this because this is not the house metaphor, but if you did begin to build your house and realize that it's on some sand, well, the gospel is structured such that God's mercies are new every day, and so you get to start building again every day. It's the beauty of it. I don't know what happened last week or the week before, but God can wash all that clean. He is a God of new beginnings. He is a God of sunrises. He is a God of forgiveness and grace and mercy. And so if you have been building your house on the circle of concerns, if you have been deciding that everybody else is at fault for what's happening in your own life, then God gives you the chance to lay all of that down and begin again. Trust in his beautiful name and allow him to make everything new again. And he'll do that. And this is why that matters. You can't control the weather, but you can decide where you're going to build your house. And you could decide that it will be the bedrock words of Jesus that will begin to shape you. And I don't care if you walk with Jesus for decades. You begin to take seriously the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, and you will find yourself at odds with your current lifestyle, at odds with many relationships that you don't even know what to do with, at odds with so many values and ethics and principles that you've lived that you've assumed were Christian in nature but are contradictory and run against the grain of what Jesus has to say. And then you'll find yourself wondering, how come I didn't know this? I've been in church all my life. Well, it's not because it hasn't been tried. It's that, no one, it's that we haven't applied our hearts and minds to the effort of staying in it long enough to matter. And so every week we'll give you a chance to discuss and engage with the people that you do life with by probing some questions your way and encouraging you to live in community around the truths of the Sermon on the Mount 
And maybe through some of the discussions that you have, you can at least begin to pick apart why it hasn't worked yet for you. That's our hope, and that's our desire. You can't control the weather, but you can control where you build your house. So maybe over the next few days, the Sermon on the Mount will beckon to you. We lost our way on our trip, and when we did, we had to have a few uh, good discussions about what it means, why we're here, and what vacation is all about. When you lose your way, you need some place to find a true north or a compass to guide you back to the path. Near the end of Jesus' life, he was with his disciples, and he began to tell them about where he was headed. He was leaving. He was going away. And this is tough for the disciples because the disciples had responded to an invitation. It was a two-word invitation we talked about last week. What was the invitation? Anybody remember? Follow me. And when Jesus said, follow me, he's saying, look, walk where I walk, do what I do, say what I say, look how I relate to other people, decide that what I value is what you will at least hold up as a potential value or ethic for yourself. Follow me, live how I live, and then we'll see if you're in for what's next. And so all the disciples, Matthew, John, James, Thomas, they were following Jesus. And now Jesus says, to all of the disciples, like, I'm going away. And they would be like, where, where are you going? I, I, we, we're following you. We want to go. And Jesus says, you can't go where I'm going, but eventually you'll go. And now they're even more confused. And Thomas says to Jesus, look, we don't know the way. We don't know where you're going. How are we going to get there if we don't know where you're headed? And Jesus looks at him, the rest of the disciples, and he looks at us and he says, I am the way. I am the truth and I'm the life. Follow me, he says. Follow me. Look, if you've lost your way, if you've been hopeless and discouraged, if you're not sure about what's next, if you're confused about what's happening in the world, and it doesn't matter whether it's a, your little world or the big world. It's all confusing. It's always going to be. Jesus says, I am the way. Follow me. You want to know what to do about your relationships? Follow me. He's very clear about it. Here's how to live it out. Here's what it would look like. You're going to try it, and then you're going to fail, and then you're going to lean on me, and grace will intervene, and I'll make your heart new again, and then we're going to do it again. So follow me. And that's the invitation that Jesus gives now. It's very simple. It's very plain. It's as simple as the communion elements that you have in your hands. And so if you have them, you can pull them out and get them ready. Jesus gave us these simple elements so that we could remember. When Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, he used a word there that's a little deeper than remember a date or remember that you need to get milk at the grocery or something like that. This word remembers anamnesis. And this word means to remember the context within which something happened. And so this context that we're remembering is this moment that Jesus is with his disciples the night before he was killed. And so Jesus gives them this physical representation of the elements that you have in your hands as a remembrance of what they will see the very next day, his death on the cross. 
And so Jesus holds those two elements, and you can hold them now. If you've already taken them, that's all good. It's all in one meal. And you can peel back the top layer and hold the bread in one hand. You can peel back the other layer and have the juice ready. He has this element, this bread, this very simple staple of life in his hands, and he shows it to the disciples, and he breaks it in front of them, and he says, this is my body, it's broken for you. And so we take the bread together. Lord, we receive your body. It's the body of Jesus broken for us. And then Jesus holds up a cup. It's a cup of Passover. It's got probably a, a fairly weak wine in it. Most of you wouldn't like it. And this wine that the disciples had been drinking most of the evening out of a few other cups, this cup is unique, probably the third cup of Passover. And he holds it up in front of his friends and he says, this cup represents my blood of the new covenant, the new agreement. That new agreement is you come and you surrender and God washes you clean. That doesn't mean you're free from judgment. You still get judged. You just have a, you got to get out of jail free card in Jesus. You have a understanding that your sins have been forgiven. doesn't mean you haven't sinned, but God does not hold your sins against you. The punishment has been paid. And so Jesus says to his friends, take this cup and drink it with me. And so we drink the cup together. And so Lord, this cup that you have provided reminds us of the simplicity of knowing you and what it means to, just to surrender to you. Lord, you're inviting us to go on a journey. There's some folks right here, right now, they're listening that know about you, but they aren't following you. They're aware of you. They understand why we're here. There's no surprises there. But they don't know what it means to, uh, on a given day, uh, Monday, tomorrow, to get up with the intent of, of following in your steps. And so, Lord, the invitation that you gave to Peter, to Andrew, and to James, and to John, you give it to us today, and, and we hear it resoundingly clear right now in this place with the sun shining on us and the beauty of the sky. Lord, your, your invitation to each individual is, would you follow me? So right now with your heads bowed and just thoughtful reflection on who Jesus is and how often we lose our way and Jesus' response to Thomas when Jesus says, I am the way. If you follow Jesus for, for days and weeks or years or decades, just renew that right now. Just say it with your heart. You can even say it out loud if you want. Lord, I follow you. Lord, we follow you. We walk in your steps. Lord, when we read the Sermon on the Mount, we are confounded because it seems so unattainable. And so we fall on your grace, but Forgive us when we have shoved aside the ideal that you present in those words is, is just something we can't do. Lord, you made it clear through the words of your son that lots of things are impossible, but with God, nothing is impossible. And Lord, for those uh, listening right now, this could be you. If you're listening and, and you've never said yes to that invitation 
you're a follower from a distance or maybe interested, God's invitation is for you to follow him. And for whatever reason, God uses our own volition, our own decisions as a marker of where we are. And so he, he just wants to know what's up with that in you. What did it mean to follow him? You say yes to that. You could say yes today. Lord, today in this place, we exalt your son, Jesus. We declare that he is the way. We declare that this week, many of us have lost our way many times, and yet we find ourselves drawn back to the footsteps of your son, walking in his dust as he walks down the road, wanting to surrender ourselves anew to him today. Because given our own maps, our own choices, our own directions, we will lose our way time and time again. And so we surrender to you. We surrender to you through these communion elements, this meal, this holy meal that we remember. And through the words that we'll sing now as we exalt your son in his beautiful name. Lord, we love you. And we surrender to you now. In the name of Jesus, we all say together, amen.